Dotnet Rocks, episode 1092, with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded Friday, January 16th, 2015. And it's another .NET Rocks. Indeed. Another week, another .NET Rocks. That's how this works. This is old home week here on .NET Rocks. Uh-huh. And uh, Billy Hollis is here this week. Chris Love is here this week. And Uncle Bob is here this week. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, we're trying to get grounded, you know, yep. in, in our post-holiday don't people get tired of hearing? Don't people get tired of hearing us, Carl? I don't think so. I, just, I You know, we, we, you guys have really popular shows. You know, the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. People want to hear you speak. And it's not that often. You know, it was a year ago you were last on, my friend. Hmm. All right. Well, anyway, Richard, how are you doing? I am well, sir. I am, uh, you know, ticking the ducks in a row, changing the light bulbs, getting ready to go back on the road. You know, all that good stuff. Duck punching? I'm not punching any ducks. Who would do that? <laughs> would do I that? actually put no ducks were harmed in the making of this podcast in the description of that show. Yeah, that was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, well, uh, for me, it's it's going pretty well. I had a really long day yesterday. It started at 3 a.m. I got up that early, came to the studio, and uh, did a drop for a customer, finishing up uh, writing a few features, and... Then uh, took my daughter to school, came back, did some more of that. And then we had three shows to record. And then uh, an hour home for dinner. Thank God my wife cooked dinner because it was great. And I I was in and out and came back to the studio and, and had a studio session with the Hempsteadies. Nice. A local band here that you're probably going to hear from soon because they're pretty awesome. That's cool. And uh, that lasted until the wee hours of the morning. So I didn't get a lot of sleep. But I'm well rested today. Exercising a lot of different careers, are you? I yeah. Yesterday it was all all one big blur. Anyway, uh, time for a better know framework. I got some more Visual Studio goodness for you. All right, buddy, what do you got? So um, I'm spending uh, some time going over some features in Visual Studio that you may or may not know about. You probably know about Navigate too. That's was introduced in. Uh, Studio 2010, I think, and you press control comma. But in 2013, uh, Navigate 2 does fuzzy matches on any source file name or any symbol, like a property name or a class name or whatever. You don't have to remember the exact name, just start typing, and it finds a good match. So, you you know, sometimes you don't know which word in a in a camel cased variable name came first. So you just start typing them all and it does a fuzzy match for you. Cool. Isn't that neat? That's smart. Yeah. I use it all the time, especially in larger projects, you know, where you, what the heck did I name that variable again? Or yeah. You don't have to get it right on, you know, yeah. search is always like that. It's either zero or, you know, it's nothing or, or the one, the one thing you're looking for. The idea that you find a range is tricky. Yep. Exactly. So there you go. Control comma. If you haven't used it in a while, check it out. It's in Visual Studio 2013. This uh, fuzzy matching. Getting smarter. Getting smarter all the time. Who's talking to us, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 978, the one we did with Mr. Hollis uh, last year when we were at Dev Intersection in Orlando. We talked about WPF. And this comment comes from Joe Cohen, who says, another great episode from one of my favorite guests. 
A key point you guys brought up is that as we begin to see new forms of hardware with touch, gesture, and voice, and so on, the software to develop on these new frontiers is going to be desktop applications. Until we get a world where the browser is the OS, which perhaps Chrome OS is the start of, desktop development is going to drive applications that accompany that hardware. We need to have the ability to properly adapt our software design to thrive with the new interaction patterns, not just adapt to it. Like Billy mentioned, non-touch Windows applications will work on that touchscreen in that buttons can be clicked and text boxes can have their values entered, but we need to truly understand how people use new interface paradigms and then design our software to align with the uses of those paradigms. Thanks again, Carl, Richard, and Billy for another great show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, and we're going to do more of that, I promise. You know, the new devices are coming, the new form factors are coming, and we got to build for them. Joe, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And it's our pleasure to introduce again Billy Hollis. He is a software designer and developer with a contrarian streak that often challenges conventional wisdom in the industry. He has a consulting practice in Nashville, Tennessee, and his team focuses on user experience design. Uh, advanced user interface development, rules-based architectures, and healthcare systems. He teaches design classes for UX and technical classes on XAML and Windows 8. Unlike many instructors, he can usually keep you awake for the entire class. (laughs) (laughs) I I just couldn't write a bio without including something that that was kind of off the wall. Have you been doing, like, full-on stand-up? Stand-up comedy? Well, in a sense, the folks at VS Live for a span of about three or four years, had me host their evening event mm-hmm. for attendees. And I would do about 30 minutes of stand-up there that was aimed specifically at developers. And some of the jokes that I came up for that, you, you hear me sprinkle it in among the yeah. things we talk about here. And they're looking at reactivating that again this year. It's been it's been quiet for a couple of years because they like to change things up and they like to do different kinds of things for the evening. Um, everybody gets tired of the same old stuff. But yeah, I did it about three or four years and I, I really enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun. I, I guess based on that experience for about four years, since I did it typically about four times a year, I made more doing stand-up comedy than some of the poor schmucks who are getting in cars and driving to comedy clubs. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, also made more money playing music in this business than I have as a musician. It's kind of funny. But have you ever done full-on, just, you know, standard stand-up? Have you ever done stand-up comedy, like in a club? I have not. There is a a club not far from my house, maybe five minutes away, and I've considered going up there on their their open nights and see. And and I actually wrote up a sketch for it, but I've never actually done it. I think I could do it and not be embarrassingly bad. I I think you'd be awesome. Are you kidding? You're a natural. I mean, you know, you've got that. you, You know, there's only one Billy Hollis in the world, you know? You have that uh, that character that can't be duplicated. Actually, there are a lot of Billy Hollises in the world, and I get their email from time to time. <laughs> and there's there's a poor kid down in Texas. I feel sorry for the guy. He's in design, as if that were as if it were bad enough that he has my name. He is a graphic and visual designer. Oh, and my. so and and so this poor guy, um, I'm sure he goes out looking for 
the ID, and I have Billy Hollis on Twitter and Billy Hollis on Skype and Billy Hollis on Gmail and Billy Hollis on Live, and yeah. the poor guy can't get a break to try to get his name as an email address. Uh, that's Tim. It's terrible. Hey, um, let's talk about WPF and, and the state of it. Um, you know, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I have this sense that um, your typical Windows desktop developer, corporate developer, might be a little confused and and has been probably confused, been confused uh, since Windows 8. And just tell me if I'm wrong here. I, might you know, be, be, might, don't even say might be. You just, they are confused. The typical one is hopelessly confused. Well, and here's because why. Because they've gotten, they've you, gotten mis- mixed messages for years. Yeah, mixed messages. And so, so because, you know, venturing, probably, I think a lot of people ventured, in Windows Forms people, ventured into WPF, saw that it was really difficult, said, yeah, I'll do that someday. And, uh, you know, and then maybe got a little bit into it, a little more into it. And then when Microsoft uh, came out with Windows 8 and uh, WPF looked like a, a little strange or... Why would we do that? You know, everything sort of went to this modern look and feel and, and Windows apps took, you know, in the press anyway and in the community took backseat to web stuff. And so nobody was really talking about these developers. And um, so they may be a little timid to go to WPF just because they're not sure of the future of it or whatever. What is your take on that whole thing? Well, this is something that typically comes up with every new new client, whether it's in corporate software or in commercial software. I just, the Staff Links video that we did a long time ago got me a new pr- prospect just this week. They called up because they want to switch over to WPF and they were confused about whether or not that was a good idea. And, and you look at all the various reasons why they would be, they don't know the things that we know in many cases about how the whole thing developed and where some of the holes are. So they don't understand, for example, that uh, in addition to the fact that um, Microsoft for a while became very centric around HTML based solutions and kind of let the, the XAML based things, um, sit on the back burner for a while. In addition to that, the teams for WPF and Silverlight were basically absorbed into the Windows division to do the XAML development that was necessary there. Right. So that XAML could be a first class citizen. So that meant that there was no team to create new things. There was no team to generate any buzz. And that certainly had the the effect, intended or not, of communicating to people that it was dead or at least quiescent, that those products really weren't important anymore. Um, and then it, w- it was fairly explicit that Silverlight was not, but in, in fact, for WPF, that wasn't true. Yeah, absolutely not. And uh, in fact, I'm doing more WPF development these days than I ever have been before. And uh, I don't know what you see out there in the marketplace for the people that are using WPF, but uh, I have absolutely no complaints about no. the the system, about XAML, about how well it performs, about click once, about all of that stuff. It's, it's very, very clean, much cleaner than most people realize, but you realize all the holes that they have in their, their understanding, and it's not just whether or not it's viable into the future. I think Microsoft pretty much put that to rest with Bill last year. Yeah. XAML is going to be one of their foundational technologies, and the WPF team has been reconstituted, which a lot of people don't know, and they are putting some improvements in, particularly in the performance realm. So I think that, that a lot of people aren't aware of the viability of that entire section. They also don't know just how how much it's needed for particular circumstances. And you touched on this a few minutes ago. The people who called me this week, for example, 
The software they're going to create, they're a commercial software vendor. The software they're going to create is going to work on farms. Well, it has to tie into devices like scales and such. That's going to, they told me, in fact, when we were discussing some of the HTML5 as an option, they said, we looked at trying to do it that way because we saw all the articles and such, but you just really can't make that practically work very well. Yeah. So there are those circumstances where some of the native capabilities and the ability to talk to especially older devices and such is so much easier in the XAML world than it is with web-based technologies. And, and so that's one factor. And then another factor is that a lot of these people have tried to get the user experience on HTML5, mm. and they can't get the kind of staff linksy, the sort of modern app, iPad right. application app kind of, of user experience without extreme work. And in some cases, they can't get it at all. The promise of HTML5 is that this stuff should be just wonderful and work on all devices. And as I sometimes say in some of my sessions, I feel like I feel like I'm in a remake of a bad movie here. I'm watching a remake of a bad movie. And the, the original movie being Java takes over the world yeah. in the 1990s. Right. That, that we were all going to be programming on Java and it was going to be good for everything. Well, Java is good for some things and we ought to be using it. HTML5 is good for some things and we ought to be using it for those. But the idea that it just takes over everything, I regard as fatally flawed. And I saw an example of it just yesterday. So uh, there was a thing on Twitter where, Richard, you'll recall that I did a session last fall on interviewing developers. Yes. uh, Very popular, too. It was a smash hit, to my surprise, because I thought that that is kind of a just a, you know, a a not very exciting topic. Mm. So I didn't really expect to see a room full of people and perhaps the most engaged audience I've ever had at a conference. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were that engaged. They were asking questions all over the place. So I'm still, three months later, getting requests for those slides so that people can see the questions I asked during interviews because this is kind of based on my experience over many decades of interviewing developers. Mm-hmm. So this person on Twitter said, yeah, I was at that session. Could you please send me the slides? I don't post them on the internet because I don't want every headhunter in the world to have them. Mm-hmm. And I was going to reply on Twitter to him. I happened to be in a coffee shop using my Surface with the Windows 8 browser. Mm. Well, I reply, I type my 140 characters, and I cannot get that submit button to work. <laughs> not with mouse, not with keyboard, wow. not by tabbing, not with touch, not with anything. It will not work. So I copied the tweet, went over to the desktop browser on Surface, put it in and submitted it. Now look, how hard is it to make this stuff work for pressing a button. Yeah. I mean, this is not rocket science here. And yet, on what I think is going to be one of the more commonly used browsers, there's a whole lot of Surface 8, Surface and Windows 8 devices out there that are using this touch-based browser. And yet, one of the major software uh, applications that you use on the web simply doesn't work there. I, um, and, I find this problem generally when uh, programmers aren't hooking uh, the clipboard you know, but they're only hooking um, keystrokes to, you know, when a key is pressed, that's when they check to see if there's text in a text field. And if so, enable a button. But if you, yeah. That may be it, yeah. Yeah, I see it all the time. But if if you're, say, putting out a commercial package, like probably about a third of our client base is, if you're, say, 3M and you're doing a radiology package that we helped them design, which, by the way, I'll put up a link to a video of that. that they, they finally did put a video of that application up on the web. So you can see just a little bit of how it works with the doctor that helped us design it, describing it. So if you're in that position, 
you just can't take that kind of of fuzziness in whether or not things are going to work. You can't take all the different things into account. I feel like sometimes these these web applications with all the different JavaScript libraries that are being added into them, they're kind of like, you know, the Terminator and Terminator 2 that came together out of a bunch of metal globules. It's like it assembles itself every time you ask for a page. It's assembled from all these pieces and then hopefully comes together in a correct way so that it works. And sometimes it does work. And if you need the reach, then you go to the trouble to make that work. But boy, there are a whole lot of things that can go wrong in that process of coming together. And if you're if you're doing commercial software that needs superior user experience and very, very high reliability because, say, lives are at stake, then you just can't afford to deal with the combinatorics of making that stuff work as reliably as you'd like it to. Combinatorics. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I find That's that, a sort of, yeah, a mathematician will just spew stuff out like that, won't we? I, I find that um, getting started with your WPF uh, projects may be difficult, mostly because of the styling. You know, it, the styling makes every difference in the world, and, and it's worth it to either get some styles from somebody that you can apply to your um, controls, or to go into Blend and, you know, make your own and, and dive in there. Uh, but once you have the the look, you know, once you have the styles and the uh, the navigation stuff down in, in WPF and all of that, that can be completely reused in, in other apps. And you find yourself being so productive after you I've get told, over that I, hump. I've, I've told people this for years, and I don't think they believe me, but I bet you do now, that after we finished our first WPF app, after we finished Staff Links, we were more productive in WPF doing much more impressive things than we ever were in Windows Forms. In Windows wow. Forms, Absolutely. Once once you get that basis down, but that's one of the barriers to people getting into this world. Yep. There is no obvious way to get that foundation in place. Microsoft has never put out a XAML reference application that contains those things. Well, there's and so I, many ways to do it. And, you know, you can use Prism and you can use this app toolkit and, you know, whatever. But it ultimately comes down to you need to know where your styles are and you need to know how navigation works and you need to be able to uh, just replicate that stuff and you need to get past some of the things that are based on the way you used to think about software that are not true so for example the people i talked to this week um brought up the idea that they they want the app to look like a modern app they're a commercial software company mm. and the first thing they think of is well let's we need to make sure that we get all of our colors right very early and i hear that a lot from various clients and you don't you don't have to get the color right no. early. What you have to get right early is your styling system so that you can easily change that stuff or reskin or retheme later. But if you come from the Windows Forms world or 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 character-based systems or whatever, you think in terms of putting all that stuff in place at the beginning so that it's nice and consistent. The idea of skinning an app sounds so advanced to you, you don't even realize it's an option for you. But in fact, in XAML, it's the easiest option. Interesting. You know, when you talk about getting over this first hump here, I mean, the big thing, strength that WinForms has was that designer, which I realized wasn't actually great for you as an experienced user. It was great for you as a novice user. Your first form wildly benefited from that designer. Subsequent forms, not so much. What's the WPF process? Is the designer usable? The designer is usable for a few things, but it really isn't. Everybody I know who gets to a certain level of sophisticated XAML development does a lot more 
typing of XAML and dragging controls directly into the XAML force, uh, the XAML source rather, than dragging things onto the design surface. It's just there so are much more explicit. It, yes, there are there are improvements that could be made. I think that would make the designer more viable. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have a document I wrote about two years ago. If I were going to design the drag and drop designer for uh, for XAML, this is what I would do with it. But none of those things have really been are, are really there, which means that when you drag something over, typically the designer makes a whole lot of assumptions about how things work that are actually contrary to the spirit of XAML. Nobody that does production XAML applications wants to position their elements with margins. Huh. You, you, you use a margin to get a little space, but you don't use that to position it relative to the to the overall design surface. Right. You use you use containers for that. But in fact, when you drag stuff over from the design surface, it's going to put a bunch of that margin stuff in there because that was the easy way to write the designer. So it is another obstacle. You have to get to the point where you become fairly fluent at writing XAML and doing all the nesting of things to make it all work because you're working with much finer grained pieces. In Windows Forms, you think of just dragging a huge big old control that does everything you want and nailing it into place. Right. And you just, you just can't do that in XAML. In XAML, you, you build things up from smaller pieces and you do all the positioning and sizing relative to other elements and parents and children and such. Yeah. Billy, I have one feature that I wish was in the XAML editor that is in Blend, and maybe you have more, but uh, it is reordering of columns and rows when you move stuff around. Oh, that's that's absolutely huge. The ability to just say, you know, I really need another row in this grid. Let's have the options of moving things around so that that's that's there without me having to edit 5011 things in the XAML file to get it right. Yep, and you. So have yeah, to that, that is that a big Visual, deal. You have to do that in Visual Studio. Go to a, each row and change the grid dot row setting, uh, and yeah. But in Blend, it will do that reordering for you. So yes, I end up using a combination of the two. But I wish I they would too. just settle on one XAML editor. You know. Well, I think that we're just seeing the functionality of Blend make its way over to Visual Studio, and it will it will eventually anything that's useful in Blend, I think, will get there. Anything that's useful for routine development, I don't know that they'll ever put things like animation timeline editing yeah. into into Visual Studio because that's a fairly specific narrow thing for a certain level of person working with XAML. But things like that, where you're doing common layout, yes, it it all ought to be over there. And I have a list of features that goes quite a, way, quite a ways beyond that. And if the, Microsoft more, people, yeah, if the Microsoft people want to consult me about that, I'd be happy to tell them those features. <laughs> well, give us a couple anyway. Well, first of all, if you drag something over, every time I drag something over, I do the reset to get rid of all that stuff that they put in there. And so the reset ought to be the default. There ought to be at least some kind of experienced or serious mode that when somebody is using the drag-and-drop designer, it doesn't behave much like a Windows Forms drag-and-drop designer should. The drag target, for example, should become the smallest, the most innermost container that you could put something in. If I'm dragging a button over to a pretty small cell in a grid, that cell should become the drag target. It shouldn't span that button across two columns. That's yeah, just, when would you ever want to do that? that? Yeah, nobody would ever want to do that. Yeah. Um. And let's see what else I've got. Oh, I would like to see some – one of the things the Windows Forms designer did do a pretty good job was a lot of alignment to fix margins and such. And I'd like to see that through separate cells work better. Um, It 
it, it I, I just don't feel like the the way that those guidelines are working, those those ruler lines, uh, is as intuitive as it needs to be. I'd really like to see a lot more style injection into the default set of things that people use. Um, they all ought to have better better cosmetics and better behavior and better visualization. There isn't any real reason for the default control set in XAML to look like Windows Forms. And mm. and those controls are just ugly. Um, for example, the radio button ought to have some kind of nice 3D a- 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 appearance. And the checkbox. If, you, if you've ever tried to move the checkbox from where it is, the, the checkbox itself, you've got the checkbox plus the text. The checkbox normally sits on the left-hand side in the upper left. You ever tried to move it from the upper left? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, you just... Maybe you don't want that, but now you are into complete control templating in order to make that work. Well, first of all, the upper left is just not a very good choice. There should be some center. It should be centered in the content of the control at the very minimum. But that checkbox is just ugly, and you could do so much better with fairly minimal work. Um, I think there ought to be things like automatic drop shadows on yes. elements that have focus and things like that. Yep. Because that lovely drop shadow technology is there, but it's almost not used at all. And there should be so just are, a single style that you can use to put a little glow around. Uh, I mean, and you can do it, but it's a technique. You know, you have to find that right. code and do it. Yeah. So if you don't realize that that technique's available and it's fairly straightforward, you just won't put out a user interface that has that stuff. You know, Billy, the last time we talked last year, um, I, I was complaining about how you, you know, if you want to style a list box, let's say, which is, you know, ridiculously difficult. And com- list boxes and combo boxes have so many layers. It's ridiculous. But, but if you want to just change something that's in there, you have to come up with the entire template. And I was complaining about that. But it turns out that Blend has the ability to generate blank, you know, default templates for the, for any control. So if you want to, you know, modify any, in all aspects of a combo box or a list box, you just ask Blend to generate a template for you, and then you can start there. It's a lot of XAML, but you have control. And right. uh, if you learn what those individual pieces inside do, and that's, you know, where being an expert like, hiring an expert like Billy will help you with that, uh, you know, you're, you're golden. Well, that's, that's one of the keys to, to using expression effectively. If you walk up to expression, say you get into the WPF world and go, I don't really want to write this XAML, maybe expression will just let me do all the dragging and dropping that I would like to do and make it work. Well, you walk up to it and it looks like this 747 cockpit of stuff that you don't understand what it's doing. There's lots and <laughs> lots of menus. And when you select something, all of a sudden you have 400 lines of XAML that you didn't have before and you don't really know what any of it does or which parts of it you ought to change. So expression is a far, far more powerful tool for someone who understands XAML at a conceptual level. Right. But getting that conceptual understanding of XAML is hard. Uh, the books don't typically do it. They talk about features. I, I really kind of emphasize that in my training. Yeah, you can go to some of the Pluralsight courses are a little lean a little bit in that direction, but they're a little bit more future or feature oriented than I would like as well. Yeah. So um so yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that in the next year or so I can maybe do something about that with some books and courses. But as usual, I've learned not to promise about that kind of thing. <laughs> but this is the problem with Avalon all along. It gave us so much control, you were hamstrung trying to decide how you're gonna do anything. Avalon, by the way, for those who don't know, is the code name for WPF. The original, original code name way back when. Yeah. 
And it was supposed to promise the world, but I think that it's just, it's overwhelming. It, it is to a typical developer. Well, consider this. I can afford to really go deep in this technology and do all kinds of things. I've been looking at it since 2005 ish. Yeah. Um, and if you think about this, <laughs> this is an interesting thing to think about. Do you guys know how long XAML has been in release? Yeah. So let's do the math. Yeah, let's do the math. 2006? Yeah. Eight years. Eight yeah. years. It was introduced, .NET 3.0, with Vista in January of 2007. Yeah. So we are now at eight years. Think about that in reference to, let's say, classic Visual Basic. which, right. will, that's, which a, that's the, the entire lifespan of Visual Basic. That's exactly right. From the huh. first, genera- first version of Visual, of Visual Basic to the last was 1991 to 1998, seven years. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking about a product that's been out there a long time, and yet we still do not have the resources to, to really use it as effectively as we'd like. And that speaks partially to the complexity, because it is hard, hard to learn to use. And I regret that it is, partially to the fact that the tools and resources have not done their job. Uh, trying to get help on some of the intricacies of XAML is a really, really frustrating experience. You find yourself doing quite a bit of of trial and error. And I caution everybody that starts with it is that you will go through this phase where you try to do something you think is really simple and straightforward. You've seen it on maybe some other application Mm. and you think, I'd like my application to do that. And then four hours later, you've discovered the two lines of XAML that do what you want. Yep. But you do, but then that is repeated again and again and again in your first weeks and months of XAML. And it starts to wear on you. You just are not getting very much done. You never feel confident. So in, that's right. You're not but fluent. But it comes, though. I mean, it, it really does. And you, you just have to put in the time. That's all. And it once, does. once I, you I, do, I, you're, you're sailing. You're golden. And when people ask, I tell them usually that fluency period takes a dramatic increase somewhere in the four to six month time frame that you've, of, of doing real work, not just diddling around with it of actually trying to get something that you're going to put in front of users. If you spend four four months at it and you actually keep trying to learn things, you'll kind of get over the hump. If you go into it and say, well, I'm just fine spoofing what we did in Windows Forms. I'm going to learn that much and stop. You'll never get over the hump. But if you do keep pressing yourself to do more modern app things, somewhere in that four to six month range, all of a sudden it will feel natural. You will look at something and go, ah, I know the direction I need to take to make that happen. And you don't have to to, uh, experiment and fool around with it so long. Awesome. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? I must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to open up the app.xaml of life and add some style. (laughs) Add some style. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, well, it's actually time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio package to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won, is your big data strategy causing you headaches? We'll ditch the complicated configuration and jargon and pump up your development with the only easy-to-use big data solution for Windows. The SyncFusion Big Data Platform installs quickly and is packed with samples to help you get up and running in 15 minutes or less. Check it out now at SyncFusion.com and start working with big data in under 15 minutes. And even if you aren't working with big data, you can take advantage of over 500 SyncFusion controls to help you build stunning applications. Or you can broaden your skill set with the free ebook SyncFusion offers on over 40 topics. Download free trials and free ebooks at SyncFusion.com. All right, buddy, who's our winner? 
Today's winner is Will Hillard. Congratulations, Will. Golf clap for you, sir. Will Hillard. Yeah, and Will just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio Package. A big pile of awesome from them. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away sponsor stuff, and every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win, so click on that Get Free Stuff button. Billy! It's your turn. If you, I know it's been a year, but if you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy, sir? I don't. I don't know that I. I don't know that I could spend five grand. <laughs> because you got everything you need, my friend. That's right. It. We are just right on the verge now of having the ideal machine, so that I only have to carry one. Which I have. I have carried two machines now for so long. I don't even remember what it's like to just carry one, but. As soon as the Surface goes to 16 gigabytes of memory or some machine that's comparable to that, then I'm ready to spend about two grand to get that plus 512 gigabyte SSD. And I could stand some bigger touch monitors. I'd probably spend another 500 on that. And then I've got various other accoutrements that might get me another 500. So 3000 is about all I need. I don't know that I need any more than that. Well, okay. You don't want any drones that uh, take pictures of your neighbors? <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't. I'm not, I've never really been a gadget freak in that sense. Yeah. I, I use the phone that I use is a Windows phone that costs $30. Nice. I'm, so, and I mean, unlocked, et cetera. This is a contract thing. It's, it's one of the low end Nokias, the 520. And I don't want a $600 phone. Um, I don't, I don't want, I, I mean, if I were going to spend that money on, if somebody gave me that money and said, you got to spend it on something electronic, I'd probably spend it on, on stereo gear. <laughs> All right. There's nothing because wrong music with that. is a big part of big music's a big part of my life. Now I, I do buy things, but they just don't cost much. For example, I just put in the Amazon echo. Yeah. I heard about you know, that. Yeah. The little, the little cylinder, the cylindrical Bluetooth speaker with microphone built in and cloud-based processing. So I walk up to it and say, uh, the, the Alexa is the name that they, they, they usually, that they assign by default to get its attention. And I walk up and say, Alexa, play the Alan Parsons project. And Alexa will go up to Amazon Prime and start shuffling music from the Amazon, or, or from the Amazon catalog for Alan Parsons. Or I'll walk up and it's kind of become a habit that I say, Alexa, what's the weather while I'm putting on my shoes? So while I put on my shoes, Alexa reads off the weather forecast for me. And you could say, Alexa, I'm hungry, and six cases of Dinty Moore beef stew show up on your doorstep (laughs) from the UPS guy in an hour. I don't know that we're quite there, but but see, (laughs) see, Alexa does all this magic, and Alexa cost me $99. Yeah. This this isn't very much. You know, I I wrote an app that did that. It actually uh, cataloged my whole MP3 collection. And it also went out to a web service and got weather. And I could talk to it and say, you know, what's the weather in Boston? What's the weather right now? What's the forecast? And it would read it to me. And uh, and I could also say, you know, play New York State of Mind. And it would find that in my collection, start playing it. And I installed it in my car. And it worked great. I took it out because what was the reason? I think there was a problem with the um, electrical system not giving it enough time to power down correctly. So, 
but uh, yeah, I have I have written that app, and I think it will just in WPF, it, and I think it will just get better. A lot of this processing, of course, is taking place in the in the cloud. So I I'll give a free product suggestion for the Amazon folks based on it. Um, I used to have one of these little machines that sit beside my bed that play sound for sleep. I prefer beach noises or rain or something like that. Well, there are one hour long tracks that people just stick a microphone out in the rain or, or at the beach or something. Right. And, and so I think you ought to be able to walk up and say, Alexa, play sleep sounds. And yeah. that there is that kind of layer of metadata that, that takes that short phrase and points it to or play ocean sleep sounds or something like that. Well, there's got to be then, an album called Ocean Sleep Sounds. There probably <laughs> is, but yeah. but I, my in my experience, these sleep sounds vary a lot in their quality. Yeah, so sure. You'd want, you'd want them to do some curation to get really good ones and to make that really available so that people don't have to do any of their own research yeah. to find out what they play. If Alexa's sitting beside their bedside, then they can just say, please play me some ocean sounds, and it would put them to sleep with ocean sounds. So that kind of thing will eventually just become a part of the vocabulary, the lexicon of of using these voice devices. Hey, before we get back into the conversation, I want to mention uh, Nebraska Code Camp. Richard and I are going to be there. That's uh, at nebraskacode.com, March 19th through the 21st in Lincoln, Nebraska. They've got three days, including Thursday workshops, Friday and Saturday keynotes and breakout sessions. Pete Brown is doing a keynote. Uh, and one of us might be doing a keynote or maybe both of us. We're not sure. Hmm. It's only 200 bucks for all three days and 150 for Friday and Saturday only and workshops are 50 bucks. So, uh, we'll be there recording shows. We're going to do the, uh, the giveaway, you know, the 64 bit question. And, um, they're also looking for sponsors. So go to nebraskacode.com. One of the biggest groups of people we had on the last road trip yeah, was in sure. Omaha. An enthusiastic bunch to boot. Great, great bunch of people. So, yeah, check them out. I told them I'd give them a shout out. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So where do we leave off in WPF land? Uh, we went through the the misconceptions about WPF and the confusion in the marketplace and uh, how templating and styling is really important to get off the ground. Um, you have resources on your blog, do you not, uh, in, in terms of ways to get to get over that hump. I do. And I'll, I'll furnish some links for that. I did a video on channel nine, uh, probably four or five months ago on data templating, which I, a lot of the stuff I do is intended to break that connection to the past that people tend to have that natural inertia to just keep doing things the way they always have, maybe and add some pretty colors. I want them to really be thinking about doing it in dramatically different ways. So I uh, will put up a link to that video. It's called data templates in XAML. And our good buddy Robert Green interviewed me, and did, we did an hour on that. So I have that. And along with that, the samples that I did for that video are available, including one that shows a little bit about one of the key things that almost all serious WPF teams have to face, which is building your application shell, building that shell that's going to to, to manage the rest of the application that's going to do authentication and authorization and it's going to do discovery to find out what kind of views to load and which ones this user is allowed to, to see and navigate and let the, you know, animate the things in and out and, and all the stuff that makes uh, a really world class modern app the, the, the excellent user experience that it is. A, a large portion of that is in the navigation shell. 
So um, one of the samples there is a very, very simple example of how you, you build a shell and have things animate in and out and do things like favorites so you can get back to something that you used to look at. So I will put up a link that contains that sample, which has some of the data visualization stuff from data templating in it and also has some uh, interesting ways to think about building your shell because there are starter kits out there. Of course, there's Prism and there's yep. MVVM lot, there's MVVM light, there's Caliber micro, but what all of them really focus on is a lot of the plumbing, how you manage to get stuff, find stuff, display stuff and manage it behind the scenes. Most of them don't do, at least in my opinion, a very good job of, of putting out the parts that the user will actually see and use that make it into a modern app. Their net, na- their navigation examples tend to be very, very basic. Uh, and if you're going to get the compelling sort of user experience, then there's a whole lot of stuff you need to put on top of those starter kits. And some of my samples, I think, will give some ideas about how some of that can work. It really so, is yeah, true. Yeah, we'll put some of that up. Yeah, it really is true. The and and I had that same experience. You know, when I started doing really good, well styled apps, is that it? It looked like a. a a lipsticked pig version of uh, Windows Forms, and until till we got over that, uh, it it really just didn't didn't pop. And there's actually two levels there. One is getting past the lipstick on a pig to the point where you do try to think about uh, using the controls in more natural ways that that look more modern. Mm. And I think we get to, to to some extent, you see some of the templates and some of the apps done from Windows 8, and, and they're good examples of getting past that. What I don't see very many people do is take the next level of getting to old data visualization techniques and such, where the, the user sees a list and their eyes are drawn intuitively to the thing that they're looking for. Right. And that's where I talked about in that, that XAML templating session. That's a level beyond just getting beautiful modern app cosmetics and using the controls effectively and not just spoofing Windows forms. It also goes into thinking about the psychology of the user, thinking about how their visual system works. Um, if you're going to do an app that, that tells you something about how satisfied your customers are, should you just do a little minimal face with a smile in it? Um, using standard kind of symbols overlaid on top of one another in a way that they can very quickly scan and let's say pick out the people who are doctors in a particular list just by the physician symbol that's in kind of a a standard space where some of these symbols can go. Um, That sort of thing I don't see people do. That, that that's another phase. Most people are just happy to get something that looks good. Right. I mean, if they get to that phase, they're ready to quit. Right. And works. Yeah. And, and, but if you're going to get the productivity and you're just going, and you're going to, to, to start to leverage the financial advantages of a modern app platform, you need to go further. You need to make people more productive because you look at, at the typical corporate uh, team that's developing for a thousand users. Well, um, every percent of productivity that you can add means, oh, I think one percent. Let's, let's, let's do the math there. If you had a thousand users and you got one percent, that means that you would be um, saving the labor of 10 users. And if the loading cost was $100,000, you'd be saving a million dollars a year on a 1% productivity improvement. Mm, right. Well, okay, I think 1% is ridiculously easy to get. If you can't get five, you aren't trying very hard. Yeah. Hey, Billy, what do you think about um, the, the importance of decomposition? You know, when you're taking, let's say, a standard Battleship Gray Windows app 
and uh, trying to make a new UI out of that and turn that into a modern app. One of the problems that's typical, and we talked about this on the tablet show, talking about it for years, is that when we were constrained by memory back in the early days, and we were also, uh, you know, we wanted to do as few forms as possible. So there was this natural tendency to shove all these controls on one form and leave it up to the user to figure out the workflow. You know what I'm saying? And yes. so, yeah, so you end up with these great big behemoth screens that do everything and, and the sort of the airplane cockpit kind of idea. And instead, what needs to happen is you need to break it down into what happens in time. You know, first they do this, then they do that, then they do this and break out those screens. And even not just the screens, but lists are a prime example of where you can decompose. And it doesn't really work unless you have a really good navigation scheme. So you're going to have more pages. You're going to have more windows. I'm, I wrote a system that uses user controls with a base, uh, you know, a base window user control that has, you know, your I notify property change stuff and all of that. And then I slide those in from the left to the right, you know, if I'm if I'm going forwards or backwards the other way, but you typically don't go backwards. And so it's very easy for me to just create a user control. And if I want to, if there's a part in the workflow where somebody has to pick something from a list, right? Rather than having that on one screen where you have a list and then maybe some other things pop up on the screen, you make that list selection an entire screen. And the list itself isn't just a list box. It's a... It, it's a list of items that have a, a representative look to them that you can create, compose from scratch, maybe with some different colors that mean different things. Um, you have some textual information in there. You might have some images in there, but something that is going to convey what the thing is itself. And you just fill the screen with them and then they can wrap, uh, you know, wrap around or, and then give them some, nice behavior when you mouse over them so that they look really nice. I mean, this is the kind of thing we're talking about, right? Decomposing. Right. And, and compose and, and then starting at the bottom and composing up so that if you need pieces for filtering and sorting and things like that, right. that those are kind of packaged with the list, but they're not really relevant to the rest of the app. Yes. Yeah. And it goes even further with things like that you wouldn't necessarily think of. You use composition to get some things um, such as I'll give an example. In our shell, anytime you put up a view, it's in a wrapper. Now, we have a variety of wrappers, but the one that's most commonly used for data entry views and things like that puts a nice header that that is consistent from view to view, so each view doesn't have to implement a header. Right. Because you don't want 300 views implementing headers. You just want one. And then that header can also contain um, a link that says, add to favorites. And now the individual views don't know anything about how they get added to favorites. They mm. don't know. They don't care. The wrapper knows how to do that. Right. And we could change that functionality at the wrapper level. But then what that means is that the navigation shell, for every view that it puts on there, it first instantiates the view and sticks it in a wrapper. And what the navigation shell shows is that wrapper. That's yeah. the thing that animates in and out. It doesn't an animate the, the smaller view because you want to be, you want the thing that it navigates to be composed of uh, of pieces that separate the functionality out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the meat we're talking about here, folks. <laughs> you get it on .NET Rocks. 
Well, you, and this, this is a tactic about maintaining, maintainable apps, right? Like it isn't a big deal the first time you work on that screen. It's the next time. Right. You need to make changes to it. And, and that makes everything so much simpler for additions and for maintenance later. And, and you can, you can do some pretty, pretty nice things with this wrapper con- concept in this composition. For example, my wrapper, which is in that sample I mentioned earlier, has the animation of the views built into it. The shell doesn't have to know how to do animation. When you put something into it, it animates the old out and animates the new in. And it, it that's all wrapped up in the, in, in that piece. That piece's responsibility is for animation. It doesn't do the header or anything else. Its only responsibility is animation. And therefore, you can tweak the animation there as much as you want. And now the animation applies to everything throughout the entire, to, throughout the entire application, whether or not it's the shell showing things. Anytime you use that control, you get consistent animation. So yeah, building up the, the whole thing from these smaller pieces is a key conceptual obstacle to get over because that's where the magic is in this technology. Right. Indeed. Well, and, you, and you, but this is the whole thing that Prism pushed early on was this idea of composability. Is this just a doing manual composition? Well, their composability was kind of at what I think of as a, um, a fairly, um, grand, not, not, a, not as fine grained a level as I would like. It was right. at the, the composition of, of views that handle particular, functionality. And certainly that's one level of composition and you you do want that composition. You would like your your app to be built from modules that are themselves created independently and then composed into the overall app. Mm-hmm. And Prism does a pretty good job of that. But even at the level of individual views, you want that those views to be composed of individual pieces that allow you to separate out common functionality and not have to repeat it and right. to get impressive things without having to work very hard at it. And if you think so, about it, WPF is set up to do that na- natively and inherently. It is. Yeah. And it, because one of the one of the conceptual barriers is people start to see the nesting that comes with composition. Because if you're going to do composition, you're going to be nesting things inside of things inside of things. They have a kind of um an unconscious assumption based on earlier technologies yeah. that if you do much of that nesting, you're just going to kill your performance, but yeah. you're not. Nope. The rendering engine is optimized for that. Right. Our nesting goes 10, 12, 15 levels deep, and we've never really seen a composition or a, or a performance problem from that. Our performance problems have almost solely been in really, really long lists. Yeah, and that's a data problem. That's not a performance problem. Right. Right. You, you come up with problem. you come up with user interface patterns to let people find the hundred items that they really need instead of making them scan through ten thousand to find the hundred they and that's need. That's just good architecture. We've been railing against that for years, haven't we, Richard? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is it's about setting yourself in a box too, right? Like we we we've been complaining about WPF having too much choice. So this idea that you set these frameworks and you, you know, open up a certain level of accessibility to all of this. Just it actually constrains you now, so that you know where you're going. Well, that's what I typically tell uh, clients at the beginning or prospects at the beginning: 
is that you want to look at it with a sandbox kind of approach that right. some portion of some portion of your team needs to be working in a sandbox because they're going to be far far more productive and and their introduction to the world of XAML is going to be much gentler and less frustrating if you give them a sandbox to do routine things in and once they've done that for a while then they're ready to expand their view of XAML into more things that way only part of the team really needs to understand all the wonderful things that your shell does the rest of them just know how to get that business logic in place and get it in front of the user in a very simple and straightforward way. But designing a sandbox is hard because if you design it to be too restrictive, it doesn't do enough. Now people will have to know have to know a lot to get outside of it and right. everybody will do it their own way. On the other hand, if you try to make it the end-all be-all solution to the problem, then you'll never get done with it and it'll be so hard to use that nobody will use it. Yeah, there's always a balancing act there. Is there room for a dedicated designer in that equation too? I don't know about a dedicated designer, but most of the teams that I end up working with end up with one of the developers spending uh, a defined portion of their time on design. And this has been the case in just about every place that I've gone to. And the percentage has varied from 25% up to about two thirds. But I don't know any of them that have gotten completely into the, I'm not going to do anything but design. because. Because there are you, there are usually places in the product cycle where there's just not any design going on right now. Where I mean, this really reminds me of the guy who knows SQL well, who's also a developer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That he's going to be your go-to person when that that query is just taking way too long. Right. But you just don't have enough of that to keep him busy full time. Now no, there he's are also a developer. Right. He's also a developer. There are certainly teams big enough that a dedicated designer might might, might make sense. But understand that. It's not a case where you just walk in and hand that dedicated designer everything that needs to be figured out and they hand you back a finished design. That dedicated designer is leading teams. Anytime that there's a design problem to be faced, he's taking members of the development team and business analysts and whoever else is appropriate and that team is designing the solution. His expertise is in leading the team and breaking them loose from the past and guiding them through the process that will get them a good design. His nice. his role is typically not to be the designer who comes down from on high and just, I've never seen that work. I guess there are designers smart enough to make it work, but I've never seen it work. I, have you, I've seen it fail, actually, many times. <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen cases where an app has been in the field, is running well, and then they want to redo its look? They actually want to reskin it? I have seen, uh, well, the, the one time I really saw that, they they almost had to throw away their shell and start over because it huh. wasn't made to allow, really make that very easy. Because if you do it right from the beginning, then the styling and reskinning and rethemming is so easy, you just don't worry very much about it. You don't there think are about some, it. Yeah, there are some fairly fundamental things you put in place. Um, there's typically... One set of, for example, control templates that is the default control template for your entire application. If you switch that out and you can encode on the fly, you can completely switch that out, then every control now looks different. So all you have to do is expect that you're going to have that file, that XAML module of those control templates in place from the beginning and that the shell is going to know how to make that the default. If you accomplish that, you can reskin anytime you want. Um, the the bigger problem comes when people go, you know, we 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 did this and we 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 stayed too attached to the past. Right. Too much of our design is dependent upon the way we used to think about things, and now we know better ways to accomplish big chunks of work. 
And almost always what that means is there is a module that has already been developed and is functional, but to really make it better, you're going to have to throw away, throw away that module and start over and do it again. Mm. Ouch. Ouch, indeed. But see, if you've, if you've broken it down the way we talked about a few minutes ago, if your, if your application is properly decomposed, then the piece you're rebuilding isn't that big. Right. And it doesn't cost that much. And, you know, we all, we're always like this. We can always build it so much faster the second time. And so the it's third not as and if, the fourth. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not as if we throw away all the, all the, all of what we gained in that first time. We apply that. We just apply it with a different lens, a different set of glasses on as to what level of user experience we're willing to accept. We bump that level up. So I'm, I'm with you, Billy. I totally recommend it spending it. And you can do this in a, in a couple of days. If you have a couple of days to dedicate to just learning, you know, to, and you can do it yourself to, you know, find a course, find some stuff, find some examples, create some styles, open up blend and, uh, and get started. And once you have your system down, man, you're going to fly. And, and it, Billy, is the money still good? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Um, I have, I have long joked that my rates are extortionate. The, the, the folks who talked to us, who got around to us last week said, we looked, we did searches for people who are focusing in the Microsoft space on user experience. And we just keep coming back to your name. Yeah. And I know there are a couple more out there, but they're all so busy that you're probably not seeing much stuff from them. Uh, so yeah, it's, I, I will tell you though that there's a little bit of a danger. I mean, you just said, yeah, you study for a few days and you and you you get there. That's <laughs> that's true, but <laughs> that'll get me, you going. It will get you going. But let me tell you about uh, what somebody put on Twitter last just yesterday, I think, and I retweeted it. This guy, his name is Chad Lair, and he put up this thing that says, "Analyzing the design behind the traffic flow of the jungle gym while at playground with my son." Billy Hollis has ruined me for life. Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> and what he means by that is when you start looking at the world through these new eyes that has to do with, is this designed appropriately? Could it do better? What principles are applied, et cetera? When you start doing it, there aren't any natural way. You don't draw fences around that. You now yeah, no. look at the entire world that way. Yeah. And I, I talk about people being infected. They look, they examine the elevator panel of every elevator they get on. It's so yep. true. To see if it's designed well. So you do have to be aware that it, it kind of changes your life in that respect. I think it makes you much more mindful of the world around you. And I think you gain a lot from that. But certainly some people are a little uncomfortable because of it. I have an example for you that that I got. You know, that I probably wouldn't have thought about too much if it weren't for your talk with the elevator buttons and all that. I was in a restaurant and I went, excuse myself, and go to the bathroom. Okay. And I look at the toilet seat and it's all wet, you know, and, and who knows what it is, right? But it's all <laughs> wet. And I look and the paper towel dispenser is directly above the toilet seat. Ah. Uh... That's just stupid. <laughs> because what happens, people wash their hands, and the last thing they do before they leave the bathroom is grab a paper towel and get water all over the toilet seat. 
Right. So you saw unambiguous evidence of bad design, and now you can't help it. You're looking to see what the source of that bad design is. There's a game called Pente. I don't know if you play this game, but it's a great game, and I've been playing it with my kids for years. And slowly they've been getting better at it. And the whole idea of Pente is that you have options when you put – and the the idea is that you want to get five stones in a row on a grid or capture five of your opponent's pairs – Don't worry about the pairs, but think of it as just a grid. You each take turns placing stones on the grid, and the object is to get five in a row. So you have defensive moves, you have offensive moves, and that's a simple idea, but it gets very complex very fast. And what what I keep telling my kids and people who want to play Pente is when you put down a stone and you have an option of if I could put it at the beginning of my line or the end of my line, I have an option to go here or there. You have to determine which one is the better one. Don't just pick one. You know, you have, and so the guys who put the, the, the stupid, you know, paper towel dispenser over the toilet, nobody thought, no, this is not a good place for the paper towel to be cause, right? Right. They had options. They could put it here. They could put it there. They chose to put it in a place where it was going to be not good for the sure, toilet seat. Sure, but the, it's a lot of that isn't how you define people's jobs. Yeah. Paper towel guy's job was to put up a paper, ta- paper towel dispenser. Right. His job was not to make sure the toilet stays clean. Now that's true. But you know, you would think that in, in deciding where to put it, that they might've just stopped for a second and said, is this going to be a problem? Right. That's the magic of, of, of embracing a user experience way of looking at things yep. is that you never just say, okay, there's this one little thing. You're always trying to see how it interacts with the other things around Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And that's a show, man. You dude, I love talking to you. You're like uh you're my mentor. <laughs> and everybody else is too, I'm sure. So thank you again. Well, I I I'd like to think I can have that kind of impact. You know my sixtieth birthday is next week. Well are you having Good a Lord. party? No, I do not want a party. Why not? I don't. I don't like celebrating the big zero birthdays. I just uh, I, I, because I don't feel sixty years old. That's a challenge, Richard. I, I, I'm absolutely not psychologically be 60 in that old. territory at all. No. Well, then let's have a sixteenth birthday party to there celebrate you your inner child. <laughs> <laughs> I might. I might be twenty-one now. I don't know. You guys could decide whether or not you think I, I act adult enough to be considered twenty-one. Yeah. Awesome. Billy, thank you again. And happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm